the Gospel of Mark, the story that changes everything. When a Manchester football club wins the league, it feels like the whole town turns out in the city centre. But of course, that's not true. It's only 50% of the town, depending on whether it's the blue or red team that's won. But it does feel incredible. A few years ago, my oldest son joined some friends on Oxford Road to celebrate Manchester City's victory in the league. I just happened to choose that example. It could have been United. The streets were lined with thousands of people, thousands of people, cheering the team on their victory parade. And there the team were on an open-top bus, waving to the crowds and holding the cup. Thousands of people creates an amazing atmosphere. Of course, crowds can be dangerous as well. My wife once went to see U2 at a very big concert venue in London, and when the band came on, the crowd surged forward, and my wife, who was five foot two and a smidgen, she says, fell and was trampled underfoot and was basically being, being stampeded, and she narrowly escaped serious injury and maybe even death because of the kindness of some tall Swedish U2 fans who reached down, picked up this five foot two woman and helped her to crowd surf all the way back to the first aid tent. And this is a true story. She watched the gig with David Bowie and his wife in the first aid tent, way. Crowds can be terrifying. Now that is the atmosphere of Mark chapter three, verse seven to 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. It is exciting, and it's pandemonium. A huge crowd of people from Galilee are joined by many others who are traveling up to about 200 miles. Look at what the next verse says. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, that's down south, Jerusalem, the capital, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, this is outside of the country, and around Tyre and Sidon, this is to the north. People are gathering from, from miles and miles away from a very wide area and they're pressing in in a crazy crush. It's mad. Everyone wants to get near Jesus, to be near the action, but most of all, the sick people. Of course they are. You have to imagine what it would be like if, you, if word got out that there was a man who could heal any disease. What it would be like. Could heal your friends or family of any disease. You would stop at nothing to get them there, wouldn't you? We've already seen some guys breaking through the roof of a house in chapter 2 to lower their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And in verse 10, we read that those with diseases are pressing forward to touch him. I mean, this is it's almost like something out of a zombie film. You know, all these people kind of coming out of the hospital beds and covered in bandages and just trying to get near him. And Jesus, it's chaos. Jesus has to have a small boat ready as backup he's getting backed up against the shoreline and he says to his disciples just get the boat ready I mean feel this what's happening here but along with the, the sick people Jesus is also having an impact on another dimension of life that is unseen the unseen world the spiritual world now according to the Bible there are evil spiritual forces at work in the world here they are called impure spirits or unclean spirits dark, depraved spiritual forces who oppress people and, 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 and hold them down and even possess them in some way. And these spirits, very interesting, they are in no doubt about who Jesus is. They know who he is even though no one else does. 
It's as if the presence of Jesus shines a, a light in their face and they shriek out, you are the son of God. But Jesus quickly gives them strict orders, be quiet. Now, why? Well, one reason is that Jesus obviously doesn't want the big reveal of his identity to be made by the powers of darkness, does he? I mean, that's not a great way to reveal uh, who you are. He doesn't want them as his witness. Also, the language, son of God, you are the son of God, is language of kingship. Back in Psalm 2, one of the great psalms of the Hebrew Bible, God declares that his son is the king. He's installing his king on Zion. And Jesus knows how politically volatile the country is at that time. And he knows that if word gets back to Herod Antipas, large crowds are gathering around a man and claiming that he is king. You can imagine the response of the Roman army. So Jesus is constantly walking a knife edge. On the one hand, his great compassionate heart and his mission to show that God's kingdom is near compel him to heal everyone who comes because he can. But on the other hand, he has to keep buying time so that he can preach and teach and explain what God's kingdom is because he must get the word out that the kingdom of God is near, but it's not what you think it is. See, this tension. Now, many of these people are coming because Jesus is able to heal them. They see what he is doing, but they are not true followers. Others are coming to see something special, a sign, a wonder, a miracle. They are not true followers. Others are coming because they're threatened by Jesus, because he's undermining their status and their power. They are not true followers. Most of the crowd are not true followers. And Jesus knows this. He knows that he's not trying simply to gather a crowd. In many ways, the crowds are actually getting in the way of the real work. So he does three revolutionary things in this passage to show what it means to be a real follower of Jesus. Three things, and I want to show you that it might not sound revolutionary at first, but they really are. These things were scandalous in that time, absolutely scandalous, and I hope to show you how. So here's what it means to follow Jesus. Three things. Firstly, you have to recognize a new leadership. Secondly, you have to receive a new forgiveness. And thirdly, you have to redefine your family. Recognize a new leadership, receive a new forgiveness, redefine your family. Three things of what it means to follow Jesus. Firstly, then, recognize a new leadership. Look at uh, verse 13, please. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And then it lists the names of the 12. Now, let me ask you a few quiz questions. How many MPs, members of parliament, does your country have? Does anyone actually know this, or are you guessing? Okay, how many prime ministers or presidents has your country had in its history? Hand up. No. Okay, English people. How many counties are there in England? I'm sure Colin knows this. (laughs) Very few people know these kind of things, because to be honest, these numbers are not that important to us, are they? But every Jew knew that there were 12 tribes in Israel. 
everyone. Or at least there had been 12. These 12 were pretty much the 12 sons of Jacob, whose story is told back in the book of Genesis. And Jacob's other name was Israel. The nation was named after him. Ten of these tribes had been lost seven centuries before when the Assyrians invaded and conquered the northern kingdom. So it looked like it was game over for Israel. Ten tribes lost. And no, they didn't go to North America, okay? Just want to park that. But the prophets, after that time, spoke and looked forward to a coming day of restoration. They said that God would bring about a new era, a new day when he would turn everything around and make them a great nation once again and restore the kingdom to Israel. So when Jesus calls 12 of his followers, apart from the crowds, goes up on a mountain and gives them a special status and a commission. Do you see what's going on? Nobody could miss what he's doing here. He is saying, this is the great restoration that we've all been waiting for. It's here. It's what you've been waiting for all your lives. The restoration's coming at every level. Physical, we've seen people being healed. Spiritual, we've seen people being delivered. Social, we've seen new kinds of community forming. Political. And going up into the hills is Jesus' way of getting away from prying eyes to forge a new revolutionary group. These 12 are the leadership of the new Israel. Now, they know how important this was. Even though the 12th name on the list, did you see that? Judas Iscariot was one who betrayed him. Uh, they took, he took his own life. They still knew that they needed 12. So at the start of the book of Acts, we find they established the criteria for an apostle, one of the 12, that have to be someone who was with Jesus from the beginning and saw him through his ministry and his death and resurrection. Uh, and, and they found two guys, and they cast lots, a bit like rolling dice, for the replacement, because the lots, decision of the lot is given by God. They picked the guy because they knew they needed 12. So this is a new leadership, and they're under the leader, Jesus. So the first thing we, we no, learn here or notice here about being a true follower is that we are under the authority of the apostles. If you're a Christian, you're under the authority of the apostles because their authority is delegated from Jesus Christ. And that's why being devoted to the teaching of the apostles, which we have in the New Testament, is vital because we're under their authority and we're people of the book. And of course, the apostles assume the authority of the first three quarters of the Bible, the Old Testament. So we're under the authority of that as well. Christians are people of the book. But before we move on from that point, we learn three more subtle lessons about being a true follower of Jesus in this section. In verse 13, notice what it says. Jesus calls to him those he wanted. Jesus calls to him by name those he wanted. And they came. See, behind any true follower's decision to follow is a prior decision, which is the decision of a sovereign God to know you, to love you, and to call you to belong to him. He calls and we follow. We would not have loved him if he had not loved us first. So if you've heard the voice of Jesus Christ and you followed him, this should be a great comfort to you. He wanted you. 
He wanted you. True stories told of a missionary who's working with sex workers, prostitutes in Thailand some years ago. I think it was the 1950s. He tried every way he could to explain the Bible to them and explain the good news, and they just weren't interested. And finally, he hit on a really strange method that is not normally used in mission circles. He decided to tell them that God was sovereign and that God elected and chose who he wanted. And that broke through to the women. And many of them turned to Christ because they knew if God had chosen them, then he really did love them. He wanted you. Secondly, in verse 14, Jesus appoints them, notice what it says, that they might be with him. They might be with him. Now, they were with him in a, in a special way, weren't they? They spent three years walking the roads with Jesus, you know, seeing everything he did, sitting under his teaching, spending time with Jesus all the time. They're with him in a literal, physical way. But the same principle applies to every disciple, every true follower of Jesus. When you become a Christian, you're not simply adopting a new set of beliefs, although you are. You're not simply joining a Christian community, although you are. You are actually entering a relationship with a living person, Jesus Christ. And that means that you are with him. You spend time with him in his word, the Bible, and in prayer all through the day. That's what it means for us to be with Jesus. And when we're with his community, we're with him as well. That's why being part of a church is essential. How easy it is to lose sight of that in our busy lives, isn't it? But that's the bottom line of what it means to be a follower. Be with Jesus. Third thing we learn here. Verses 14 and 15 tell us what they were appointed to do. They were with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, these 12 had a specific role at a specific time in history. But I think there is a principle here that applies to every follower of Jesus. Jesus calls you, calls you to himself in order that he will send you out into the world and extend his kingdom. So we're not supposed to be about our kingdom and our little lives. Don't we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom, but thy kingdom. We're supposed to carry forward Jesus' work in the world and by that to extend his kingdom. We do it by deeds of love and mercy and by casting out evil where we find it. And usually that means the evil of our own hearts and the evil in our community by serving in the local church and building the community of Jesus right where we are. But it may well mean casting out an evil spirit at some point. If you want to talk more about that afterwards, I'd be very happy to do that. We're also to proclaim the lordship and the rule of Jesus by proclaiming his word and opening it week by week so that we come under the authority of the apostles who are Jesus' people. So, first thing we learn about being a true follower is that you recognize a new leadership. Secondly, you receive a new forgiveness. Receive a new forgiveness. And this is more shocking than it might sound at first blush. So we pick up the story in verse 20. Jesus goes into a house, and again, what happens? A crowd of people gather, people are running, they want to get in the house, the house is so full. It says here that it was so full that the, Jesus and his, his men couldn't even eat. So you can imagine how crowded this house is. And then we have what the scholars call a sandwich. 
And I don't mean that they then eat a sandwich, okay? This is what scholars call a device that Mark in his gospel has, where he starts a story, and then he kind of interrupts it with a filler in the middle, and then he picks up the story at the end. So there's a sort of three parts to it, A, B, A. It's like a sandwich. And the two bits of bread on the outside are the story that gets interrupted. But the bit in the middle usually is the one that explains what's going on the outside. And we see several of these sandwiches as we're going through Mark's gospel. This sandwich starts in verse 20. Have a look there with me at what it says. Jesus entered a house, again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. Wow. But then the story is interrupted. Verse 22, we have teachers of the law coming down and they challenge him as a long discussion about, is he from, is he from the devil? And Jesus says, well, that doesn't make sense, does it? And so you have this dispute going on and Jesus then tells some mysterious parables. And then right down in verse 31, the story of the family picks up again. So what is Mark doing here? He wants us to ask why he's carefully edited his material in this way. So I want to think about the two stories. Verse 21, the family come to take charge of him because they think he is bonkers, balmy, mad, crazy, insane, off with the fairies. Jesus' own mother, Mary, and his own brothers, four of them are named elsewhere in Mark, they're actually opposed to him at this point. And in verse 31, they're, they're outside the house. They come down to take charge of him. We're going to, going to get control of Jesus. And they get someone, I don't know who it was, they send this person in, go and tell Jesus, get out of here now. Tell him it's his mum. And Jesus, this is, this is really interesting, he severs the family tie with a single stroke. Look at what he says to the people inside the house. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, isn't this harsh? Isn't this extreme? What is Jesus doing? A friend of mine once prepared a sermon on this text and as he stood up to preach in the church he realized that it was Mother's Day. <laughs> I don't know how he managed to do this but he forgot it was Mother's Day. Oh, wait, you don't really want to be preaching on this on Mother's Day. But lest we should think that Jesus is overreacting or mad, Mark puts that middle bit in the sandwich and here some other people oppose Jesus, and once again, it's the religious establishment. And their challenge is not that he's mad, but that he's bad. Verse 22, they say his power clearly comes from the prince of demons. Now, why do they say this? They can obviously see that Jesus is doing things that are miraculous, supernatural. No one can do the things that he does. So there's only two conclusions you can get from that. Either his power comes from God, or his power comes from the other team. The prince of darkness. Here the word Beelzebul is used. The various names used in the Bible. But the Bible talks about a, an evil angelic being who fell and has been opposed to God and his purposes ever since. Sometimes called Satan, the accuser. 
And here these guys come down and they concluded that Jesus must be getting his power from the prince of demons. So he is a wicked, evil force. And Jesus absolutely destroys the argument because it doesn't make sense. He says, look, come on. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house can't stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand, his end has come. In other words, guys, I'm driving out demons here. You notice that. I'm healing all the, the sickness and cleansing the lepers and putting the world to rights. I'm, I'm undoing all Satan's doing. H how could you conclude that I'm actually on Satan's team? It's completely illogical. It's like saying that, there's a, that, that this person who's fighting this person is actually on the same side. What you're implying is like a civil war or a family feud. It doesn't make sense because Jesus is bringing about the actual kingdom of God. He can't be doing it by Satan's power. Now, he's defeated the argument, but I want to actually focus in on something that gets overlooked here, and it's, it's about the new forgiveness. Look at verse 28 and 29. Verse 28, truly I tell you, Jesus says, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, down through the centuries, many sensitive Christians have been despairing and tormented by this verse because they think, what if I've done the unforgivable sin? The, the thought is so terrifying to them. Some people have been driven to the edge of despair by this because they're so worried about what, the, what is this unforgivable sin? And of course, Jesus doesn't say what it is. So they think, oh, how have I, have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? How would you know? But you see, the thing that we should that should comfort us here is that the only sin that can't be forgiven is refusing Jesus forgiveness say it again the only sin that can't be forgiven is refusing the forgiveness of Jesus including suicide including betraying Jesus including the worst possible blasphemy that could come out of your lips, including the worst act of immorality that you could think of. Any of these things can be forgiven. How do I know that? Because of what he says in verse 28. And it's so big, I'm going to read it again. Remember, Jesus speaks on his own authority. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. So there's the forgiveness that Jesus is bringing. This forgiveness is radical. He's saying that people can be forgiven for absolutely everything by him. Every sin, every evil thought, every evil word, every deed, every omission. Everything you've ever done. Now, I've said this is radical. And maybe it doesn't sound radical because we all like the idea that God's going to forgive us, don't we? I think it was Jean-Paul Sartre who said... Of course God will forgive me. That's his job. But that's us. We, we want to believe we can be forgiven because we don't think we're that bad. What about the other guys? What about the people that we think of as really bad 
people, the ones that we can't forgive, the ones who, when they go to prison, we hope they get battered to death by the other prisoners because of what they've done. This week I did a school assembly at the Manchester Grammar School and they asked me to speak for 10 minutes on an inspiring Christian from history. And I chose the guy who wrote the most popular song, uh, possibly the most popular song in history, certainly I think in the world, maybe after Happy Birthday. His name was John Newton. John Newton <clears throat> was born in the 1720s when he was a young man. He, jo he joined the Navy. He was so disobedient and rebellious that he was actually publicly whipped and disciplined by the Navy and he jumped ship and ended up joining a slave trading ship. He joined at the bottom of the rung of the ladder but he worked his way up. Eventually Newton became a captain of a slave ship and this was at the height of the transatlantic slave trade the mid 18th century. There were something like 100,000 African people being taken torn from their home and community and, and taken by English ships across the sea and sold into permanent slavery and something between a third and a half of them would die on the voyage because the conditions were so inhumane they were so sick and shackled they were mercilessly beaten and many of the women and girls were raped by the slave traders on one occasion Newton reported the fresh water was running out so to spare the water they threw a hundred grown slaves into the sea and he was a slave trader and a rapist and that's what he did for several years and this man wrote the song Amazing Grace Amazing Grace how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Because in the height of a, of a terrible storm, when the ship was sinking, Newton had cried out for mercy to God, and God had answered him. Now, is he somebody that you could forgive? Huh. Told you that forgiveness was radical. What do you think about him being forgiven? The book that I was reading about Newton was wonderful story by a guy called Jonathan Aitken recent biography Aitken himself was a man who was in disgrace some years ago you might remember a senior MP in this country and a cabinet minister who was part of a scandal he lied under oath he threatened the newspapers he sued the papers because they said he'd lied about him and he was found to have perjured himself and was sentenced to prison and there he was stripped of all all his power and all his riches and Jonathan Aitken laid low whilst in prison and in disgrace he discovered the grace of God for himself you know he came out he retrained as a minister now I once remember talking about Aitken to a senior colleague when I was headhunting and she said oh yeah very convenient very convenient you do what you like you get caught and then you say sorry and you just get away with it is that how it works yes that's how it works that's what the, the radical shocking nature of Jesus forgiveness is that he will actually forgive anyone so becoming a follower of Jesus means that you accept that you need to be forgiven like that and that God alone can do it 
See, if we place our restrictions on what God can do, what Jesus can do, who he should forgive, then we're saying that we know better than Jesus, which is what his mum and brothers were doing. We know better than God, and that places us on the outside of the house, not on the inside with the followers. And that's what Mark is showing us with this sandwich. The biological family, get this, the biological family are just as bad as the teachers of the law at this point. They are not calling for a friendly family meeting. They are trying to stop him. And any opposition to Jesus is satanic. So Christians, I want to just pause for a moment. If you're a Christian here, follower of Jesus, I want to pause and ask us to do what my wife often says we need to take a good look in the mirror we need to take a good look in the mirror are there any ways that we do this that we stand in the way of what Jesus is doing in our city or in our lives or in other people's lives because of some other things that we hold dear maybe because of our tradition could it be that you would not recognize what Jesus was doing because the other people who are doing it don't look kosher they just don't look like they're right because they're not from your group, your denomination. They don't have your way of doing things. They don't sing the same songs and talk the same jargon. Could we actually oppose people like that? Do we sometimes stand in the way of what God is doing in our city because of suspicion? We suspect new things, new initiatives, new people, new leaders. Of course, we've got to be discerning. But sometimes... We don't support people because we're insecure, because we're proud, because that new church plant might do better than our church, and maybe people will go to that instead. And then doesn't that make us look lame? But the point is, Jesus will be glorified through it, because he's working through that. Let's not stand in the way. Let's repent of that attitude, if it's in our heart, and lend a helping hand. Okay, we're finding out what it means to be a true follower. It means recognizing a new leadership and secondly, receiving a new forgiveness. And thirdly and finally, redefining your family. Redefine your family. Maybe for some, this is the most radical thing that we're going to read today. I don't think it sounds that radical to modern Western people because our families aren't that close. We tend to kind of live as a nuclear family often separated by many miles from our extended family and when the children grow up we expect they'll fly the nest we expect they might go away to university and we expect they'll marry perhaps and they'll go and live somewhere else we don't expect to be that tight but to people in Jesus day and that culture the family was everything and some of you are from cultures where that's still the case. So you do get this. I appreciate that. See, in Israel of old, the core of who you were in society and where you belonged was your family. In fact, family was your identity. You didn't really have an identity as an individual, soul, lone person. You only had an identity so far as you belonged in a family. You see how important this is? Your family was your life. And so Jesus Christ here reevaluates the significance of the biological family. Radical. 
And notice that the biological family at this point are the ones outside the house. Now, it didn't stay like that after his resurrection. They, they became followers of him, his mother, his brothers. Some of his brothers became leaders in the early church. We read about that in the book of Acts. But at this point, they're on the outside looking in. And the insiders, Jesus says, you're my family. I've just disowned my mum. You're my mum. Brothers, sisters. Now what does he mean? He means that his true family is based on allegiance to God and God's purposes, not bloodline and upbringing and background. He means that his true family is defined by loyalty to Jesus above all other claimants on your loyalty, including your family. And to everyone who wants to join, Jesus invites them to become part of a greater family. Remember what it said earlier on about Jesus called those he wanted? And although that's quite comforting in some ways, it, it might sound exclusive. Here we see Jesus throwing the doors open, wide open to anyone who would come. Anyone who does the will of God becomes a member of my family, he says. Anyone. And remember, anyone can be forgiven. So he redefines family beyond the biological basis of the nuclear family and the clan. What are the implications of this for us? I'm going to close with these five implications. Firstly, do we at Grace Church define our family by blood, relationships, or by belonging to Jesus? Think about those other Christians who are in your small group, your life group. Do you, do you view them and define them as your family? Now, that's what he's teaching here. Now, that must shape decisions. Let me point out a few things. Might make a few people feel a little bit awkward, but I'm saying it in love. Surely, if church is your family, then you will make every priority to be here on Sunday morning. But what we've noticed in the last few years is that as the church has got bigger, people feel freer to miss the family gathering. There are quite a few people in our church who actually come when they're on rota. They're very faithful, but often they miss the other weeks. Now, let me tell you, we're not about filling the rota. We're about being a family. So if this is your family, show up at the family gathering and make it a priority, please. If you have to go away for the weekend, can you come back Sunday morning, Saturday night? Can you shape your life and your decisions around being around the family? Secondly, life groups. These are midweek groups that we have. They're not just a little discussion group or just a little prayer group. The reason why we call them life groups, which is a slightly naff name, is because we want to share life. So we can only do that if we're actually in each other's lives. And that is costly because it means we've got to have an open door. We've got to spend time with people. We've got to share food with them. We've got to have their kids around. Oh, aren't other people's children annoying? Of course, ours are perfect. It shapes how you use your home, doesn't it? If, if the church is my family, then of course they're welcome in my home. It shapes even things like your emotional life. See, when your family suffers, you really weep with them, don't you? And when your family rejoices, you're so happy. Do we at Grace Church define our family 
by blood relationships or belonging to Jesus, blood or belonging. Secondly, does our shared commitment to Jesus bind us closely together so that when we're with one another, we're really listening? Now, I don't mean, of course, that whenever someone says, how are you, you have to pour out your life story. It's not always appropriate. But let's be real. Let's learn how to love each other and let's make that love costly so that it binds us together can only be done in the context of a lot of time, which is your most scarce and valuable commodity. Your time. It's the most precious thing you have, and if you share it with other Christians, it'll bind you together with them. Thirdly, this is great news for those who are without a family. If you don't have a family and you follow Jesus, you now have a greater family. You now have the greatest family. You have, you're part of something that is far greater and more glorious than even the best nuclear family in the world. You now have a greater family. You know, our faith was founded by a single man, Jesus. And our faith was propagated to the greatest extent in its early days by a single man, Paul. And even if we look at British Bible-believing Christianity of the last hundred years, some of the most significant, many of the most significant leaders who've carried it forward have been single. So singleness is, is a prize and a glorious gift from God to be used while he keeps you in it. And that might be for your, your whole, all your days. Because you're part of a family. You're not, if you're single, you're not some sort of spare part who's waiting around until you get plugged into a, a real family, you are in the real family already. See what I'm saying? Great news for those without a family. Fourthly, a hard call for some. A hard call for some. Some of you may face a wrenching choice if you choose to follow Jesus. You may face a wrenching choice. Very good friend of my father, a man who's now around about the age of 60, chose to follow Jesus Christ when he was a young man. His father was a devout Muslim. He called him in. He said to him, I'm going to give you this one chance to, to renounce Jesus and come back. Otherwise, I disown you today. He said, I can't, I can't renounce him. Dad, I've got to follow Jesus. And his father renounced him that day and cut him out of his will and out of the family. He never saw him again. He left home with 13 pounds in his pocket, got a train ticket, which cost 10 pounds. Found himself homeless in London, following Jesus. And he once said to me, and I'll never forget it, you know, when we ask Muslim people to follow Jesus, and they do, they lose their family and the whole web of relationships that they've lived in. And what we offer them is a Sunday meeting. Now, friends here, Grace Church, you know there are many Muslim people looking for what else is out there at the moment. Some have said that the fastest growing religion in the world is post-Islam. They want to know what's out there, but it will cost them dear to leave that. They will lose their family, no doubt. Some might lose their life. Are we ready to receive them into our family, our church family? So ask that hard question. And if they do... They will need courage, and they get courage 
from the family. Let me finish with this little story, this reading from a scholar called David Garland. Garland says, as our world is drawn closely together by instant communication and supersonic travel, we seem to be growing further apart. Jesus' definition of family embraces those outside one's kith and kin as brother and sister. His understanding counters the ruinous tribalism and the ethnic strife that rears its ugly head in our cities and in our nations around the world. General Colin Powell tells the story of a young African-American soldier who was asked if he was afraid on the eve of going into battle. And he said, I am not afraid. And the reason I'm not afraid is that I'm with my family. And he nodded over his shoulder to the rest of his unit who were made up of white, black, and Asian young soldiers. That's my family. We take care of one another. The members of Christ's church should be able to say the same thing as they take the gospel to a hostile world and as they face the struggles that come with everyday life. Recognize a new leadership, receive a new forgiveness, and redefine your family. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a challenge you are. You come into our lives, even those of us who have known you for years, and it's like you just broke the door down and the wind came in. Forgive us. We're so short-sighted and narrow-minded, and we're so selfish. Help us to change. Thank you that we have a promise here of forgiveness for everything. Thank you that we've got strong and reliable leadership. Thank you that we're in a great family. Amen.